Welcome to Think and Act Differently, the modern mining podcast. I'm Katie Humes, founder of Think and Act Differently. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the different dimensions of what it actually takes to commercialise technology and just how we might go about that together as an industry. With me is Andy Reynolds, President of Inspire Resources, and Borkart Seifert, Partnerships and Commercialisations Manager at Think and Act Differently. Welcome. Thank you, Katie. Good to be with you. Hello. Andy, 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 you do not have your guitar with you today, but I hear you're a bit of a muso. Warm us up with a little bit of your musical background. Well, uh, I play the bass in various kinds of bands, and the most recent band was uh, was actually a pop band, which was uh, a great thing for me to get into at my stage of life, having previously been in classic rock. Fantastic. So I reckon we've got a bit of a top 40 chart coming out here, because I believe, Borka, you're a bit of a muso as well. Yeah, I played the guitar um, when I was at high school, and I was very passionate about blues and playing in large um, blues bands. Well, between blues and pop, I think we've got the foundations of some good technology commercialization discussions here. The, the link for me is that this is an art. What we're going to talk about today is an art. And I, I think that there's, a, there's certainly not a fixed rule or a particular way that you have to go about it. But bringing creativity and an artistic display is really what resonates with me in uh, technology commercialization. So I think we've got the right two people here. Andy, can you uh, help us understand a little bit about uh, Inspire Resources and maybe what motivated you? I mean, as someone who is trying to push a, a brand new future onto the mining industry, how did this come to be and, and what brought you here today? It's actually quite interesting that Inspire Resources started with a set of questions about systems integration. Uh, we were really looking at the engineering practices of the mining industry and how innovation gets deployed. And we thought there were some better ways to do it, but it was going to be really hard to to push those in without a, a real driving force. And so we looked at the bigger trends in the industry. And what we found was that there was a need for a new business model that would ultimately drive uh, a different systems integration model. And so we founded Inspire Resources in order to deploy a new business model, which we called mining as a service to community-owned projects. We have a name for this model, which is Mineral Impulse, uh, and it really restructures the design challenge and the commercial relationships across the enterprise in ways that allow more innovation to be deployed more easily. So to help our listeners out a little bit, can you just explain a little bit more about what systems integration is? Yeah, before um, starting Inspire Resources, I spent um, 10 years managing R&D in, in government labs in Canada. And what I noticed was that we were pretty good at developing point solutions, you know, individual technologies. And what I realized was that all innovation is really now a systems integration problem because we deploy those point solutions into quite complex systems, either existing systems or future systems. And there are a lot of constraints and opportunities, a lot of factors arising from the system that have a big influence on the point technology. And for the point solution developer, it's not always obvious what those what those constraints are. We had also, I think, experienced this in my previous career in the defense sector, where, again, increasing complexity of systems meant that technology readiness level alone was not telling us enough about what we needed to know. And we needed to be thinking about systems integration readiness levels, and there were various attempts to, to try and create such metrics. Borkart, you've got a very interesting past having worked in many sectors. Is this something you've seen 
whether it's in automotive or renewable energy, any of those spaces you've been, is this systems engineering coming up for you? It does. So my background is I've been working in all the three spaces um, where innovation is professionally done, um, which is corporate innovation, academia, and a startup that I co-founded. All those elements and areas have given me the luxury to really see innovation and technology development from different angles and perspectives. So on one side, I saw the challenges that the founder has, understanding the technology, and then getting a first customer, which in my my case was um, also a mining company. In the academia world, you have to think more broadly, as um, Andy alluded to, where this technology, where this research fits into in the broader picture and what we're trying to do. And in corporate innovation, the integration of technology into our value chain is, I believe, one of the hardest things that we are seeing at the moment because for anybody who is initially an outsider or comes from a different world, not mining, may not be aware of all the challenges, all the little elements that need to be true in order to be successful in their ability to be integrated. So I want to explore a, a bit of a topic here that you mentioned, Andy, and, and I'll start with you on this though, Booker. What, what in your eyes do we mean when we say the business model of, of a company or of, of a technology? Yeah, fundamentally, a business model is how a company creates, delivers, and captures value. It's about how the business is working with the other stakeholders and can integrate them. Fundamentally, it's also about the ability to create an opportunity to solve a problem that someone has in a new way. And I would say mining has got many of those opportunities, and I'm I think, truly excited and fascinated by the opportunities that new business models, new technologies can help us to shape mining. Andy, is that where the mining as a service model came from, this same belief and understanding of the opportunity in front of us? Yes, I think recognizing that there's an evolving commercial architecture in many sectors now. There's a trend towards servitization, for instance, so turning product-based business models into service-based business models. And there's quite a, a rich literature now on, on servitization that shows how you can use these alternative models, such as equipment as a service, to unlock innovation. You can use performance-based contracting with very relevant business goals to incentivize your partners to innovate the means of production. You can only really do that if they own the means of production. And so it's this ecosystemic thinking, which is which seems to me to be a general trend that's emerged over the last 30 years or so in, in many sectors that unlocks this progress based on a common understanding of goals across the, across the ecosystem. So I see it as a very powerful vector for innovation. So are we seeing the business models changing in our equipment manufacturers and in our supply sector, or are we seeing it changing on the, on the miners' side? I would say neither. Okay. And, and, and I think the, the reason for that is because I'm not perceiving much change in, in either of those. And I think that it would have to start with the miners. I've talked to uh, equipment manufacturers who are open to the idea of servitization, but are not able to find markets that would work. And so I think that if we take a look at the 
set of competences that exist in a mining company. Uh, and actually, there's been some research out of UBC on this to to look at what what is the core competence of a mining company and and what activities do they contract out or outsource. Um, I think it's a really open question. What is the core competence of a mining company? The business model of mining is very much bundled. You know, you look at a mining project and everything is included and it's all sort of packaged together into a cash flow model. And so there's a, there's an instinctive reluctance to take pieces of that and outsource it into relationships with partners who may have servitized um, their products. I've got a, maybe a different lens that I would like to share. When we think about the mining value chain, what we can see is that there is change happening. And I'll start maybe from the very end where we sell products. It is fascinating to see that the automotive industry is going to deploy half a trillion dollars within the next seven years to secure the supply for the EV trend that we're seeing now. I think that will change some of the commercial aspects and the way how mining companies are going to engage with their customers. Automotive industry has got specific requirements that mining companies then ultimately has to fulfill. So I think they will see some opportunities for new business models evolving and new ways how mining companies and their customers can work together. On the other spectrum of our value chain, when we start with exploration, there is an interesting phenomenon where we can see sensor technology being deployed obviously to locate new projects and I think the sensor company or the technology companies realize that just being involved in selling a service or just the equipment is maybe not as meaningful for them so they will they're exploring other ways and what we can see here is that they want to participate in the success of the technology being deployed. So they would maybe have options in some of the projects that they find. Um, a sensor on its own is not necessarily as powerful a sensor in a system where the technology company can provide an algorithm that looks at a large amount of data deployed in one single project is far more um, powerful. And then in the middle we have everything like in like in, in the mining space um, and with automation robotics. We are also, I think, going to see some changes in the business model because with an automotive truck, you have to think about who is actually the operator when the OEM would be fully capable of operating that truck. So I think there are many little things that are changing at the moment or there's an evolution of some of the business models that, that we're seeing now. So, Borkart, where in the technology development cycle do we start talking about business models? I think we have to talk about all the different options that we have. So, first of all, mining companies need to be aware of the evolving technologies that are out there and that are at a very low TRL stage, but they also need to be aware of the technologies that are ready um, and can be potentially integrated in today's operation or the next mine. I think we have to be quite agnostic and focus on all of them. I've talked to uh, companies in the equipment supply chain at, uh, at trade shows and so on, and I, and I asked them, what would it take for you to move to an equipment as a service business model? You know, what would it take for you to, to move into a performance-based contract 
that would allow you to deploy innovations into the equipment that you own. And they, those who don't immediately reject it out of hand, um, they pause for a minute and then they say, okay, we would need two things. Um, one is we would need to participate in the design of the whole system. You know, we would need to make sure that design rules of the system were configured to enable us to succeed in our performance-based contract. And two is we would need to see everything that was going on in the whole system all the time to make sure that nobody was trying to outmaneuver us or disadvantage us or, you know, to maintain the trust in the whole system. And I've taken those that to be very important guidance as we think about changing business models and enabling this co-design environment collaboration throughout the project life cycle, which is currently very, very difficult because of the way that we look at the project life cycle through an investment lens. So Andy, I remember a conversation we had many years ago where people have heard B2B, so business to business or B2C, business to consumer, and you introduced me to H2H, and I've used it ever since, so human to human. In that scenario that you're explaining, it, it takes the people to unlock that and to, to find the way for those service arrangements to, to work and for the transparency and trust to build to operate that system. But yet we establish business-to-business relationships. How, how, how do you overcome this dilemma? Uh, slowly uh, and arduously. One of my favorite sayings is that trust arrives on foot and leaves on horseback. And it does take time to create a sense of common purpose whereby participants in a relationship will not try and disadvantage others in order to to move ahead. So it is challenging and, and people do need that visibility of what's going on in the system. They need to observe each other. And a lot of the research that's taken place into collaborative relationships has really highlighted this way in which participants in a collaboration view each other through various lenses and, and they observe the walk and the talk and how when those things start to diverge, you know, it can become a, a really a zombie collaboration. So there's, there's a rich human-to-human set of cultural circumstances that enable these things to succeed. And our work with Oz Minerals over the past few years has really helped us almost create a living lab and, and see those things in action, see people starting to work together and starting to share ideas and to be vulnerable in ways that enable them to start trusting each other. It's really important. Do you have the same experience, Borka? Certainly. I think the ability to work together in a collaborative team can unlock so many opportunities. Compared to a solid approach, it's just a great opportunity to be part of. So how do you at such an early stage when you're really collaborating, how do you approach the topic of intellectual property? It's just such an important part of being able to commercialize something. What's some of your, I guess, techniques, approaches to, uh, to make sure that, that doesn't become a barrier? The first aspect here is a startup company lives on the fact that they can secure IP for them to go forward. It is a critical part, it's something that investors want, but also it helps the startup company to compete with others in the market because they have got something that's valuable and, and unique to them. So it's an important part. The question is, who else needs to be participating in owning that IP? And from a mining company perspective, you may want to consider if that technology is really core to what you're doing or it's just 
one of the solutions that you are considering. And if it is the last one, then I would say you should be open to open up the ability for others to own the IP and maybe you can take a step back because that ultimately will help the startup or the owner of the IP to flourish um, and go faster. And speed is one of the elements that a mining company would be interested in. So having the ability to secure the technology earlier is and understanding where you integrate it is probably a more strategic advantage compared to owning the actual IP. I completely agree. And it's it's so important that we keep this topic on the table as we continue to want to develop new technologies and bring people together. Uh, it's about that speed to deploy uh, the ability to actually unlock our resources with this technology is what really, really makes a difference to the mining company. Andy, you mentioned a bit of a, like a living lab. I'm sure you're talking about our scalable and adaptable cohort. And to any of you listening on the line, uh, shout out and thank you for all of your uh, efforts. Uh, can you elaborate on the process that we went through a little bit to build this consortium and, and some of the learnings we got along the way? Yes. When you and we started working together three years ago on this question of uh, how do you build a flexible mine, we had your your uh, Think and Act Differently infrastructure available to us to go out and find people who could see that that would be worth doing. And so um, we went to the crowd to seek ideas. And what was really interesting was as we, you and we reviewed those submissions together and we talked and we interviewed the proponents, we found technologies that were relevant to the question of flexibility for sure in a lot of modular capabilities and so on. But what also became crystal clear was, was that some of the proponents were just desperate to get into a collaborative relationship where they could contribute to the formulation of a whole system idea. So first of all, I, th I think we, we had a preference for those people. Like we, we chose a lot of people because of the behavioral cues, not, not just the technology. Uh, and then as we started to develop that forum and work together, it became clear that at a very deep level, we were feeding some oxygen to some people. And their commitment to this process was, was really remarkable. You know, it was quite hard to bring regular meetings to a close because there was so much a latent desire to explore this whole system perspective, understand how the pieces fitted together. And so what my learning from that was the people who get this really get it. And there must be tremendous power in bringing those people together and enabling them to work together if we can create the space and allow the time for those, for those relationships to develop. It's funny you say time because I, I think the number of times I've, I've asked Borka how quickly things are progressing, he smiles at me. And, and I know he's implying, be patient, Katie, these things take time. Borka, you have been a huge driver behind a number of Think and Act Differently's consortiums from right back in its early days with what we then called the Electric Mine Collaboration, right through to a wonderful waste to value joint venture that you're uh, now the initiator of. Do you want to talk a little bit about your experience in forming these groups? It's been a tremendously rewarding journey. The things that you learn, the people you work with are just an uh, amazing opportunity. And I think we are just at the, at the start of what we are about to unlock and what it can unlock through meaningful collaborations. As you said, we started off with an experiment, which was the energy and mining collaboration, which interestingly enough, it worked. And from that, 
we learned so much and it has greatly influenced now the joint venture that we have with two other mining companies and we're about to get more companies being involved. Fundamentally, we are addressing some of the key challenges that innovation teams have in mining companies, but it's also addressing some of the challenges that innovators, startups, um, small companies or big ones um, are facing when they are working with other mining companies or with mining companies. I am curious about the way we think about creation of markets for new technologies. And this sounds to me like the more companies that work together and share common problems, the broader the potential market for our technology companies actually is. So it's better if we're all sharing and talking. At what point does that become competitive, Andy? That's a really uh, good question. And, there, and there, again, there is a, there's a good body of research on innovation collaborations and the life cycle of collaborations. And it's almost like a cycle of seasons. So you kind of plant the seeds in the spring and then the value creation really starts to show up in the summer and you see things growing. Eventually, there has to be a value capture stage. You know, companies are, are in the business of being economically sustainable and they have to capture the, the rewards somehow in some kind of fair and mutually acceptable way. And so that's the harvest season. And then the really tricky part is the winter that follows because if you don't recognize that you've been through this life cycle, what the research shows us is, is you can end up with zombie collaborations that are no longer able to create value because everybody has switched to a value capture mode and people are being quite defensive. So the ability to sustain the collaboration in the value creation and value capture space is the real differentiator here, I think. I can add to that that this uh, final phase, this zombie phase, there's some very interesting research about the adverse psychological impacts it has on people. If you have a collaboration that has peaked and that really the best thing you can do is break it up and reassign those resources to other things, you should really get on and do that because what the research shows is that often organizations won't admit that that's happened and you end up with psychological impacts being borne by the people who are left in this zombie collaboration. Goodness me, that sounds absolutely horrible. So if we reach there, please let us know. I'm hearing about zombies. I'm hearing you know, about uh, psychological issues. As a new entrance into the innovation technology space, every article I read spoke about valleys of deaths or double valleys of deaths. I mean, it's certainly a complex and challenging environment to work in. Booker, why is there so many references to hard times in terms of the way we develop technology? Yeah, so that is not a unique problem that mining has. That's more broadly in the any technology development, any startup will face that. And it's either the valley of death or another way to think about it or um, analogies the crossing the chasm, which means that initially you get a little bit of traction in your technology development, but then when it comes to deployment and getting to the next stage, it's incredibly hard sometimes to do that because you just don't get the traction. You are not able to show the value to your potential customers and so on. I think this is really where TAD, we all have played a role in need to continue to play a role to be a little bit the translator between the companies that are not coming from the mining industry but want to 
provide a solution for the mining tech to help them to articulate the value better, to connect them with places where you can demonstrate the capabilities of the technology and ultimately then help them and support them in the way how they connect with other mining companies. Do we have enough of those places for people to test their technologies? We have test mines. We have um, obviously labs and the opportunities to deploy technology. I, I think there need to be more more of those. The challenge is the commercial model behind those and how you would uh, make that economical and safe to run those facilities. But there are also fantastic demonstrations and, and examples that you can lean on and, and have a look at. Connecting the innovators with those test centers is essential because that's exactly where they can demonstrate their value um, in places which are not impacting our production and potentially have an impact on safety. So it's absolutely essential that we have more of those. So for me, uh, I can't help but look at the environment we're living in at the moment. You know, a need to rapidly decarbonize, a need to think about our overall impact as an industry and, and what we're going to do to address that. But at the same time, the demand for metals is the highest it's been. And the rate of development of mines needed is so high. I don't know the exact time, but the average time for development of a mine is somewhere in the, the 10 to 15 years or more. And the average development cycle for a piece of technology is not that different. So why does this stuff take so long to do, Andy? We could run an entire episode on this. Um, <laughs> I think we could. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to dodge the question. Of course uh, you are. And I'm going to say, what are we doing about it? Excellent. Um, because the interesting thing is that the mining industry tends to regard time to market as some kind of natural law and tends not to be very introspective about the factors that drive the project life cycle. And if we think about, uh, you know, anybody who approaches the engineering from a systems perspective is going to ask questions about the project life cycle, the, the entire project life cycle. And uh, we tend to manage the project life cycle in mining without particular imperatives in the time domain. So we tend to try and mature the ore body knowledge to the point where we think we've got a good investment case. And we just kind of chip away at that while we try and secure funding for it. The other factor is you, you referred to both technology development and mine development. And if we do those things sequentially, if we wait for the technology to mature, and if they're both 15 years, then we've got a 30-year time lag, which is simply not consistent with any of the global imperatives that we face, whether it's the SDGs, decarbonization, Paris, one and a half degrees, or even mining companies' own net zero commitments. So this idea that, that we can only build mines with mature technologies has to be the first place that we, that we try and address this. Volkart, I'm pretty sure there is uh, some things coming to mind for you around how hard it gets to move technology from that early stage experimentation and the early development of a relationship into something that's actually up and running on a site, has got the buy-in and support of the operators on site and can go to that next stage. Is it as simple as th throwing money at it or are there, are there other things that we need to do to make that, that stage successful? Yeah, it's a very 
interesting problem to solve. And obviously, when I think about integration of new technologies into an existing operating mine, um, I come from the view that the operations have got primary focus on safety and production. And if I'm coming in together with the technology company and say, well, you could change this and alter that, I'm not going to be well received because it may have an impact on both production, safety, timing, and so on, everything that the assets are focused on. So the pathway forward is to help people to understand what the potential impact could be if that type of technology would work and then find a way how we can demonstrate the value and, as Andy pointed out, make sure that when we integrate, it's embedded in the system. And that's a very complex problem to solve. That's not, not, not as easy. And as you know, we tried, we failed, but we also had successes. The key part is that you need to come with a view that you want to help to solve a problem that the assets have. You're not going there for the sake of, well, you want to integrate new technology. That's probably going to fail. And therefore, maybe to the point that I made before regarding test mines, it's a good place where you can trial technology out, showcase the value and show that the integration works or refine the integration so that it is ready for the assets to deploy it. So in both your example about technology on site and Andy, your example around the development cycle of projects, I'm getting this feeling that risk and the risk appetite and understanding of risk plays such a huge part for all people involved. What's your view on risk? There's a lot of risk that arises from the architectural constraints that are imposed on projects very early in their life cycles. And so if you look at the challenge of decarbonizing existing mining operations, it's heavily constrained by choices that were made a very long time ago. It's very difficult to make wholesale system change in an operating mine that has production targets and, and is, is committed to high efficiency. And so I think what we've got to do is ask ourselves, well, where are these decisions being made? Where is the system architecture being set and by whom and with what goals and, and when does that happen? Uh, and this is particularly relevant, I think, for major mining companies today who mostly have net zero commitments that are time bound a decade or two out. At the point where, where they expect to be net zero, they will be operating projects that they don't yet own because they are replenishing their pipelines through acquisition. And so there's a lot of very early stage projects out there that are in the hands of people who are not necessarily very sophisticated in systems architecture that are coming into existence, coming into the pipeline that are going to be decarbonization problems. And so I think we've got to look upstream and say, okay, that's a very cash constrained environment, but what can we do to improve the systems thinking early in the project life cycle to enable change to happen more easily in the future when those are mature projects? Yeah, we all see the direction we're heading. And I know that the global discussions around uh, access to capital and, and certainly the news out of the investment markets around the importance of sustainability and decarbonisation, environmental matters are changing the future for this industry at a rapid rate. And I absolutely agree with you. Uh, the mines that we will be operating or maybe someone else in an as-a-service model, who knows what the future holds, 
in the years that we are stating net zero will be different than the ones we have today. Borkart, how are you seeing this sustainability or environmental and social governance topics change the way we're thinking about technology? Those changes are a great platform for innovation. As you said, legislation, um, a more ESG focus is a platform for us or any innovator to think about new technology, how we can remove waste, how we can eliminate um, CO2 emissions, lower footprint, lower water consumption, all those things. That's a great pathway forward, which allows for new opportunities to be considered. The other point you made regarding access to finance is also that more certainty in the legislatory environment around companies needing to meet some criteria obviously puts pressure on the mining company because costs may go up and the selection of opportunities that they have to acquire or build new projects is informed by that. But on the other hand, again, there's a new platform that's emerging for new innovation to come in. I personally believe that probably electrification within the mining fleets is one of great movement that we're seeing now where many mining companies will think about how they can integrate electric trucks into some of the early project plans um, and mining development plans that they have. So some of the thoughts that they will or that we have around the readiness to electrify um, will be at the forefront of those those projects coming online. There's absolutely been some great progress in this space and to any of our fellow members of the Electric Mine Consortium listening today, I know that that group has come together all with a shared belief that working together on this electrification challenge is so important as miners, equipment manufacturers, suppliers, we we really need to get in and work together. It reminds me of when the safety issues were so prevalent for the sector, we just got in and solved that challenge together by saying, we need to share, we need to collaborate, we need to give insights to each other because it's not okay for people to get hurt at our sites. And we've continued to work together on that. And it's great to see companies coming together and unlocking technologies together in this space. So I think it's going to be a really exciting couple of years in front of us as all of these different movements uh, get up off the ground. What I am curious about is we've seen some shifts at a, at a government level and, and I think both across uh, Canada where you're from, Andy, and, and here in Australia, Borkard, I think governments are, are really starting to open up space to support the entrepreneurial sector. Uh, they're seeing the need to provide access to capital for startups, to support technology development, uh, and to accelerate projects. It, it seems to be happening. How is that actually impacting the work that we do? Is there more that needs to be done? You know, what is that ultimate role of governments? You know, one of the reasons that I left R&D was because I didn't see that much of a shortfall in the support for new technology development. What I perceived was a was a systems integration problem. So it's it's a safe place for governments to provide support into point solutions and particularly in academia. 
I think the the challenge is how do we how do we overcome this systems integration problem? And particularly, we've talked a lot about the role of collaboration and the role of co-design, and the the leadership need for bringing together people who can work together to solve problems. There's no IP in that. No venture investor is going to invest in somebody who just happens to be good at pulling together the world's best team. So governments are kind of aligned with venture capital in the sense that they're really looking for IP to, to support the, the development of, of point solutions. I think we need to be aware that that is a constraint and that the bottleneck in the system of progress may not be support for technology development. It may be how those technologies come together. Another role that the government plays is to provide the fundamental infrastructure required that enables the innovate or the, the technology to be built up on or maybe build um, a, a large showcase project that is then the unlock for other technologies around it. And then with grants and support, it can be really the unlocking element of large-scale deployment of a certain technology. So solar, for example, with the feed-in tariffs was the incentive for households to build solar, and that has led to the fact that solar is now the cheapest form of electricity generation compared to where it was 20 years ago. So key important parts of the puzzle the government is playing. I must admit I took great advantage of the uh, the home battery scheme here in South Australia and thoroughly enjoy having the lights on at home when the street has no power. So there are more incentives for the early movers into those technologies as well. Just before we leave the, the topic of regulation and legislation, I, I think there's a couple of factors worth mentioning. One is the need for economic reconciliation with First Nations, uh, Indigenous peoples. There may be a collision between critical minerals that really seeks a great increase in production that's going to have to drive a lot of automation and commitment to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that, that will give a lot more people a say in where the supply comes to market. And so I think there are some really big macro issues for the, for the industry to deal with there. And the other thing that I would mention on regulation is that the regulations that protect investors have um, a significant impact on how the engineering of the project life cycle happens. Um, so the, the underlying assumption in those regulations is that the greatest risk to investors is an under-designed project. And so the effort in the early stages of the project life cycle goes into single point design feasibility studies that demonstrate that there is a design that can be profitable. And so we end up with, with designs that are not very robust because they've only been developed in a single point. So there's a range of impacts that securities regulation has on the engineering process that I don't think we're paying enough attention to at the moment. And if our strategic goal is to decarbonize the planet, we may need to revisit those and say, okay, how are we going to change these in order to enable the outcomes we really want I can certainly see why systems integration, complexity and potentially even wicked problems are really the underlying thematics behind all of these challenges that we're facing. And to overcome them, we need to work together and share our stories and our learnings and be willing to, to adjust and pivot along, along the way. Now, we've been talking a little bit about systems integration today, but really 
Now, Borka, I'd like to, to unpack a little bit about the end-to-end system view and the implementation of technologies. Our experience with hydrogen certainly resonates in this space. Do you want to elaborate for our listeners today? So first of all, I think it's important to have an understanding of the characteristics of the technology and the potential impact. That's probably the first point where I would start to think about what is it that this technology would be able us to do differently and unlock what type of value it would unlock. In the context of renewables and um, and hydrogen, um, when we think back 10, 15 years ago, renewables or solar in particular was relatively expensive and it had the challenge of intermittency, which means it was not very reliable. Now, renewables is cheapest form of electricity and it's probably the first choice when you build new generation. So we've overcome that and it's now a key part of also future minds. We consider solar and wind. The next iteration now is how we store that energy and that's where hydrogen comes in to really be able to have clean power 24-7. Great opportunity. When it comes to assessing those opportunities where they fit, I'm coming from the school of Karl Popper who um, uses like falsification process, which means there is no right or wrong. There's more that there's just a better or worse. And I think when you think about some of the technologies where they can be deployed in the context of mining, they are better or worse sites where these technologies can be deployed. In your portfolio, it may not be suitable to have a certain technology, but it may be, well, the best choice to have in other scenarios. So I think the way how we should think about it is not ruling out a technology on their applicability on our current assets, but more think about the key characteristics and how it can help to potentially shape or form our future assets that we have. I think there's something worth adding to that, which is really the the digital backbone that is now available to us for assessing that. You know, if we think about the various assets within which we could deploy new technologies uh, and the task of understanding which are better places than others to do that. Uh, the use of modeling and simulation today can greatly accelerate our insights into that uh, and actually can also create opportunities for deeper integration of partners uh, into the process because we can now take modeling platforms and expose APIs, you know, application programming interfaces, to partners to run their own models uh, and influence the design of the entire system. So we can make this a more two-directional, interactive assessment of the value opportunity, which may involve some change of the, of the technology to re-optimize it for um, the assets we're looking at integrating it into. So I think this, this integration question has the opportunity with today's digital technologies to become a lot more interactive and a lot more participative, and therefore the design process could become a lot more inclusive. Ultimately, that will move us faster. Yeah, there's a couple of great takeaways in that for me. One is the the use of simulation uh, and using that to understand the options that are available to you and, and really building optionality instead of narrowing into one solution. But also any investor would say diversification across your portfolio is important. And that's what was coming to my mind, Borkart, when you were saying about having technology. You need to have a portfolio of technology that's available for a portfolio of resources that's available. So that's fantastic. Really something for us to think about there. Another aspect here, which comes back to the business model discussion that we had earlier, in a business model, I think we should consider 
the physical aspects of a business model and the digital aspects. So mining obviously always will have a very strong physical aspect in what we are doing. But I think more importantly, the digital aspects will play a greater role, especially when you think about the digitalization and automation of some of our processes that we have. That's a really uh, key part. I think the linkages between both are very interesting in how one is not as powerful as the other, especially when you think about one truly unlocks the value with the digital backbone. So that's very interesting. If you also compare maybe the mining industry with, with another industry and how hard or easy it is to deploy new technology, let's use the example of Amazon. We always think about Amazon as a very digital-focused um, business model. It's not quite true because when you think what's in the backbone of Amazon, these are warehouses, drivers, whole infrastructure to have an engagement with, with the customers. So it's just as important as the digital. It's just not as the forefront. And I think in mining, yes, we have got a very physical business model in front of us that we are seeing, but the digital aspects becomes more and more important. The really interesting aspect of this is the question of what is the business model for the digitalization? Because if you think about this, the systems integration problem becoming increasingly digital, and you think about where do the skills lie for hosting the digital backbone and managing this collaboration and ultimately engineering the whole system? And if we look at mining companies over the last, say, 20 years or so, and ask what has happened to the deep engineering skills in mining companies, you know, some would argue that that we've gone from a from a, a highly systems aware engineering foundation to more of a procurement model, and and we have uh, commoditized the engineering design process and pushed it out into engineering companies, where we buy person hours of labor. And I, I would say this that probably complicit in this is the regulatory model for investments that have standardized what a feasibility study looks like. So we've really commoditized and cemented in place a, a commercial architecture for the engineering that is not necessarily optimal for this digital future of system integration and collaboration. I think there's a really big open question about the, the commercial architecture of the mining industry and its partners when we think about these new paradigms for managing the whole system. I really want to get a little bit personal with both of you. You've both been a part of founding new companies, and I'm sure your journey hasn't been easy. And so for the listeners on the line today that are leading their own businesses or even trying to just start up a new little subset of an existing business, push a new product, do something different, What's been your greatest learning, Andy, on your last couple of years? And, and maybe that thing that you sit around the coffee table and you say, hindsight, hey, if only I'd known. I would say that um, founding a company is, is an intensely human-centric business. It's a, a huge privilege to be able to choose the values and ethics of the organization you create and lead. Um, and if you don't get um, a really big kick out of finding people who who connect to that, then I think it would be a really hard journey. 
And so, you know, when I think about the the ups and downs of this of this journey and what has sustained me through that, it's really the opportunity to live a, a life of purpose um, and to engage with other human beings, you know, to get this H2H connection that allows us to work our mutual wills in the world together, to quote a, a famous law author. Um, but the, that, that human connection and, and the opportunity to found a, a human-centric business uh, and to perhaps set it on a path whereby you can sustain those values for as long as possible into the, into the growth phase is just an enormous privilege. Borka, what about your experience? It's a very rewarding process. It's very um, rewarding engagement that you have, especially setting up a team to deliver on a purpose and then to see ultimately the impact that the team and yourself have made is fascinating. And as you said, Andy, it's like it really gives you the kick there where you say, well, I want to do this again. I want like I'm addicted to getting projects up and running and and making an impact on whatever you're doing, um, small or big. So that is truly fascinating and someone who has done that before, you want to see that again. There are plenty of opportunities where you can lead um, and drive projects in a certain way, similar to what a founder would do um, in their own startup. It, it is a very human-centric endeavor. I would say the main reasons why startups fail is not because the technology is, wor is not working or you don't get the business model right. I think one of the key reasons startups are not working is probably because you, you don't get along with your with your co-founder or it shifts away in a certain direction that you're not comfortable with or things like that. So that is a personal way how you can show up and learn and become a leader, how you can shape that and make sure that you're focusing on the key purpose, like what are you trying to achieve rather than your personal gains? I would just add uh, that the uh, level of personal risk tolerance is key to this, you know, and one of the things that I, I've come to believe in running a startup is that one of the major obstacles we have to innovation is mortgages. Because, you know, when you want to recruit people who are in the prime of their careers, who are really well qualified, have great experience and, and, a, and a youthful vigor to challenge the status quo, they've generally got young kids, they've got future college bills, they've got big mortgages, and they are living a, a corporate life that they don't necessarily enjoy because they need the financial security. And so if, if you are fortunate enough to be able to take some personal risk, then, then great opportunities await. So uh, that, that's been my experience. There's a certain uh, privilege there that we take for granted sometimes, I think, in our ability to take that personal risk. And so I certainly appreciate you sharing that with us today, Andy, and for all of you on the line that that's resonated with. Uh, maybe we need to schedule another episode about how we can set ourselves up uh, to move into this space in the future. We are up against time today, gentlemen, so a massive thank you to Andy Reynolds, President of Inspire Resources, and Burkhardt Seifert, our Partnerships and Commercialisations Manager at Think and Act Differently. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Mining Podcast. To find out more about the amazing work the TAD team do, 
please head to thinkactdifferently.com.au. This episode was recorded on Ghana land at Podbooth Studios, studio engineer Rory Nack, and produced and edited by Lauren McWhorter.